Welcome to Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. My name is Craig Martin, and I'm a professor of law at Washburn University School of Law. This is a podcast that seeks to explore and explain various perspectives on the different legal regimes that govern the use of force and armed conflict, what I loosely and collectively call the Laws of War. It's a podcast that hopes to provide conversations on hot topics and debates that will be of interest to experts in the field, but also to help make these areas of law and policy more intelligible and accessible to the non-expert. If you're new to the podcast, I'd encourage you to listen to episode one, in which I talk more about the purpose and scope of the podcast and lay some of the foundation for most of the issues that we discuss through the various episodes. And if you're not new to the podcast and you're finding it enjoyable or helpful, please do spread the word to your friends, colleagues, students, and consider posting a review or a plug on social media. Now, this is the first episode of the third season after a bit of a break this last semester, and we have an exciting line of guests and topics for this coming season. Our guest today is Professor Olivier Cortin of the Center for International Law at the Université Libre de Bruxelles, or the Free University of Brussels in Belgium. He's the author of the widely acclaimed book, The Law Against War, which was first published in 2010, a book which Bruno Sima, in his foreword to the text, calls a huge contribution and a great work on the use ad bellum, or what Cortin himself calls the use contrabellum. But Professor Cortin has just published a second edition of the book. Indeed, it has only become available in some places in the last few weeks. And this edition updates some aspects with new sections on such issues as cyber operations and the like. And I thought that the release of the new edition would be a great opportunity to discuss the book, which is perhaps not as well known in the United States and North America as it is in Europe. This may in part be because, as we get into in our discussion, Olivier takes what he calls a restrictive approach to the use uh, contrabellum in contrast to a more extensive approach that has tended to endorse the unwilling or unable doctrine, preventative self-defense, and various other suggested innovations or relaxations of the use ad bellum regime. We begin and end our conversation in this episode with a discussion of this methodological difference and the implications and significance of the divide. In between, though, we dive in to look at how he explained the meaning of the use of force and what the threshold for the use of force is, which includes some discussion of the new uh, section on cyber operations and questions about naval interdiction that we have talked about in previous episodes of the podcast. We also talk about how and to what extent the law on the use of force applies to non-state actors and what the standard is for attributing the acts and actions of non-state actors to states for purposes of the doctrine of self-defense. That leads in turn into our discussion of the interpretation and operation of the doctrine of self-defense itself, and whether there is any scope for anticipatory self-defense, and how, in particular, we should understand the principle of necessity within the doctrine of self-defense. As fascinating as the conversation is, it really only just begins to scratch the surface of all that the book has to offer. And we aren't able to get into whole sections, such as the chapter on UN Security Council authorization, a chapter on humanitarian intervention, and yet another chapter on the use of force with consent. So I do hope that the discussion whets your appetite and that you'll pick up a copy of this meticulously researched and very carefully and persuasively argued book, which is, I think, a fantastic resource. Well, Olivier Cortin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being with us and making time for this. It's a pleasure. Hello, Greg. Well, as you know, before we dive into the substance, I've been asking guests to the podcast to share something about themselves, something that we might not learn from your biography. That is maybe something a little off the wall or even just something that most of your colleagues, even at your own university, might not know about you. Well, I would like to start by talking a little bit about my parents. Unfortunately, they passed away uh, in the last two years. And when I published the second edition of my book, I gave them some kind of recognition for the work. 
I have accomplished. On the one hand, they inspired me because when I was a child, I was evacuated from uh, Santo Domingo with my parents after a U.S. intervention. So it was, of course, uh, a curious event in my early life. Wow. And after that, well, my parents were very involved politically, notably against the Vietnam War and against military interventionism. So obviously, I when I began this research and know, I, I must say that, of course, they influenced me very, very much in this regard. On the other hand, they hated law, so they didn't like law <laughs> at all. They considered it was only a fiction that they were professors of sociology. So according to them, law was not important at all. And on the other hand, then when I, I started studying international law and then law, it was in reaction to my parents' beliefs. <laughs> and perhaps this book is some kind of reconciliation of, of some ideas of my parents, but certainly not of their discourses or, or their methods because they never touched to, to law. So well, it's perhaps some, something I must say from the start to, to, to give them some rec recognition. Well, that's really interesting. I, and I, I'm sorry for your loss, but I'm sure they'd be extremely proud uh, of the work that you've done. Thank you. Thank you. And we are, of course, here to talk about your magisterial text and congratulations on the very recent publication of the second edition, which is what we're going to be diving into. And it just came out earlier this year. And as I understand it, only late this year in some parts of the world. So it's a timely discussion. But we're going to talk in due course about the second edition and what may have changed between the first and the second edition and whether, in fact, you may have changed any of your positions that you took in the first edition, which, as I recall, was published back in 2010. But before we do that, I thought we should spend some time talking about the book in general. Many, indeed, most of our listeners will be familiar with the book to some extent. But especially, I think, on this side of the Atlantic, the book is not as closely studied as it should be. And so we should take some time to explore some of its key aspects which I should add will be a challenge in the short time that we have, since it's a, as I said, a magisterial book of, of some length and density. But I think you begin with uh, a discussion of methodology and the theoretical foundation, and you make the powerful point that this methodology, and in particular, the different understandings of customary international law, will drive how one understands the scope and operation of use ad bellum, or what you call the use contrabellum. So we should perhaps begin there until it sort of laid the foundation of our discussion, have you explain a little bit about how you view, not the methodology of the book alone, but your understanding of the divide in the use ad bellum between what you call the extensive and restrictive understandings. Well, yes, I studied international law in Belgium and in the French speaking world. And it can explain perhaps why I, I was educated following very classical positivist methods of in international law in general. And when I studied the, the non-use of force, I simply transposed this methodology to this specific topic. And of course, well, when I, I started writing about this in the French world speaking, it was not very original in the sense that at least we shared a common method and, and, and common um, understanding of the important sources, precedents, and so forth. And then when I met some people abroad, 
and particularly in the US and read people and met people in conferences and so forth, it became clear that there was a problem because not because we were we didn't share the same position on the substance, but because we didn't have the same methodology at all. And it appeared to me that it was perhaps the most important debate because if I think that if you follow a strict methodology, you will reach probably at least a certain range of possible results. By contrast, if you open your method to another and more extensive approach, of course, you can reach very different uh, results. And it's for this reason that I considered it was important to, to dedicate an entire chapter about methodology to present the different perspectives, to understand the debate, and also just to, to warn uh, the readers that what I would propose after would only be the result of one possible method. Because perhaps I follow a, method, a positivist approach, but I don't think at all that it's the only method possible. So I think it's one method. I think it's shared by many people, not only the French-speaking world, but also, for example, if I look at the, the works of the International Law Commission, I have the impression that it's rather this approach that is followed. If I read the, the decisions of the International Court of Justice too, and part, more particularly if I, I read decisions uh, in relation with the non-use of force, I think that the method I used in my book are closely linked to the methods used by the court, but it's not the only method. And, and the aim of this chapter was to highlight the different possibilities to apprehend this kind of problem, either with a restrictive and positivist approach or with other more open methods and approaches. Right. And it is a, a long and, and dense chapter in which you, I think, very fairly explore both perspectives in some detail. And we're not going to be able to get through all of that now, but perhaps you could just give us a thumbnail sketch of, in particular, how the two different approaches that you lay out, some of the differences flow directly from a very different understanding of how to establish principles of customary international law. So maybe we can just say a few words about that as, as a way of introduction. Yes, uh, I think that the common understanding of inter international law shared by the two uh, approaches is that first, there is an international law about the use of force, because some consider that this kind of rules simply do not exist. So it's a first thing. So it's not a realistic perspective on international relations, according to which no international law would exist because only practice could be observed. So there is an international law about the use of force, but the difference, uh, another uh, common position is that the texts, the existing texts do not, are not sufficient to, to apprehend the different situation in which you must assess the legality of the use of force. So nobody could say today that, for example, I don't know, a right to humanitarian intervention is not allowed because it's not expressly recognized in the UN Charter, or self-defense against non-state actors is not allowed because it's not recognized explicitly in the UN Charter, you must always interpret the existing text, and then you must turn to practice. And in relation to that, you can use 
either means of interpretation as enshrined in the, the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, which refer to, to practice, if it reveals an agreement between the, the state parties, or to customary international law with here again practice and iniuris. This is a common understanding, I think, of the debate. If you read all the authors, the numerous authors who write about that, but here we have a distinction between two great, uh, two basic uh, positions, and of course there are uh, different um, nuances between those two. But on the one hand, you have this strict positivist positivist approach, according to which, and it is according to me a restrictive approach. Because you must show that, of course, you can go beyond the text, but you must show that practice has led to an agreement between states, and not only between a group of states, but an agreement between perhaps not all the states of the world, but representative of the international community of states as a whole. To, to use the terminology found in the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties in relation to, to parentary norms, because obviously here we are in a situation in which parentary norms are at stake. So if you follow this restrictive method, you must show to, to establish a new exception, a new argument, a new justification, you must show that it has been accepted by a vast majority of states. And of course, it's very difficult because either you turn to texts, non-conventional texts, like, for example, resolutions of the General Assembly, but basically they will confirm the UN Charter and they didn't recognize any new justification, at least as such, or you turn to practice as so precedents, I don't know, uh, Iraqi war, Vietnam war, and more recently Syria, Yemen, Ukraine, and so forth. But in this case, you can, of course, deduce from practice uh, a, a new interpretation of international law, and it's perfectly possible. For example, after the Iraqi war in 1991, uh, the possibility for the Security Council to authorize the use of force was clearly to authorize states to use force, even if not recognized formally in the Charter, was unanimously recognized by, by the international community of states as a whole. It was one precedent, and then others were very frequent with Somalia, Bosnia-Herzegovina, uh, Rwanda, Haiti, and so forth. So this possibility for the Security Council to authorize the use of force was recognized in practice and in and agreed by all states, actually. So it's possible. But for the majority uh, of the precedents you can study, you will rapidly uh, understand that there is a division between states. So in this case, if you follow a, a restrictive approach, you will conclude that no change has occurred. Uh, because you should prove a general agreement between states, all states, including, for example, the non-aligned movement. And perhaps one specificity of my book uh, is that I've tried to find the positions not only of the states, for example, present in the Security Council when you have an intervention, but also outside the Security Council uh, debates, beyond the, those debates, and for example, in the statements made by the, the non-aligned movement, which are very interesting because they represent the, the majority of states, and those statements contain 
some very precise and specific excerpts dedicated to the interpretation of international law. So if you follow this approach, your interest will be mainly on the reaction of states and of the majority of states to specific military interventions. And most of the time, your, your conclusion will be, well, international law has not changed because the majority of states doesn't want to change international law. On the other hand, you have a more extensive approach according to which a positivist and, and restrictive reading of the Charter is not adapted to the evolution of international relations. So here you have a mix uh, between a classical legal approach, but also policy considerations, the necessity to adapt international law to, to the context. And then you will focus on practice, perhaps in the first place, and to the acceptability of practice uh, in relation to certain objectives, taking into account certain results. And of course, you will be interested in the reaction and the position of states, but perhaps uh, you will focus on major states and your reasoning will be, well, international law must evolve more, more simply, more rapidly. And then you, you are not obliged to show a general agreement of, of the international community of state as a whole. And many authors follow uh, this approach, particularly in the US, but not only in Europe too. And of course, that can explain why you can perhaps find some huge differences between some conclusions and very serious studies about the, the non-use of force because the approaches are very different. And to try to, to simplify it just a little, as I understood it, you really suggest that the restrictive approach tends to place greater importance on opinion juris in trying to establish whether a new principle of customary international law has emerged, whereas the expansive or extensive uh, approach tends to focus on practice, and as you just said, the practice of powerful states or democratic states. And, and you uh, suggest that the restrictive approach should reject this idea that privileges some subset of powerful Western democratic states as somehow having greater influence or, or being evidence of widespread state practice in our understanding of customary international law. Uh, yes, indeed. I think that the two approaches, of course, are found on some values also. You cannot ignore, ignore that. If you follow a restrictive approach, your position about states, uh, about the relations between states will be, of course, basically based on equality on, uh, between states. So you won't accept that some states would be more able to represent the international community than others. And then you will criticize the method, the extensive methods, not only because uh, it wouldn't be in accordance with, I don't know, for example, the jurisprudence of the International Court of Justice, so for technical reasons, but also for political reasons. Because probably if you follow this approach, it will be because you consider that to follow a more expensive approach would be equivalent to some kind of return to, to previous periods of international law in which the most powerful states were the only 
actually who created and applied international law. So it's based on a certain political vision, I think. Whereas if you follow a more expensive approach, you will probably answer that, well, your opinion is based on the one hand on the reality in the sense that in reality, some states have the power to, to implement basic rules of international law. So they have a certain kind of responsibility and therefore, it's logical that you will focus more on their position than on the other states like, I don't know, uh, states like Belgium, Luxembourg, or Nepal, or I don't know, <laughs> Lesotho, and so forth. And on the other hand, it's true that uh, if you follow this extensive or expensive approach, probably you will also say that the powerful states you have in mind are democratic states. So it would be more democratic to, to give a certain weight to the position of democratic states. And so I tried just to present the two approaches without uh, any hierarchy. But as you know, my vision is rather clearly in favor of the first uh, of these two approaches. But I don't think that there is bad faces in any uh, of the, the, the authors who defend one or, or the other approach. Right. Well, we'll circle back at the end to talk a little bit about whether there's any way to resolve or to bridge these gaps. But before we do that, we'll, we'll dive into some of the substance. But uh, one quick question, and not to go down the rabbit hole of theory uh, of jurisprudence too, uh, too much, we leave that to my colleagues at Borderline Jurisprudence. But I was curious, that, and you've said Today, and, and certainly in the book, you make the argument that the restrictive view is, is a positivist view, and the extensive view you actually suggest is related to natural law theories, and it harkens back to just war theory and, and, and so forth. It's quite interesting that Mary Ellen O'Connell, for example, was on the podcast not, not long ago, making a very strong argument for a restrictive view and tying it very uh, directly to a natural law understanding of international law. And so I'm curious as to why it is that you make this distinction between the one being positivist, the other being more a, a natural law phenomenon. Well, yes, it's a very interesting example because uh, Marie-Hélène O'Connell uh, and I very much appreciate her work. We share the same position, I think, basically on the substance because she rather uh, insists on the, the necessity to respect the UN Charter as such. But I think if I, I apply the distinction about extensive or restrictive view uh, in relation to method, she will be on the extensive side. So mm -hmm. as I said before, I think that you can follow one approach and at the end you can support a position that could be perhaps not the one you, you would expect. And in the other sense, for example, an author like Christian Tams, and I appreciate also his work, he uses a rather restrictive approach, but at least in some, in interpreting, for example, self-defense, when he interprets self-defense, well, he reached a result which is rather close to, to the authors which we follow an extensive approach. Right. So you, you, you cannot classify, of course, authors like this. He or she is restrictive and then he or she will automatically reach this kind of result. It's more complicated than that. And many authors perhaps between the two. So 
I'm usually classified as a, a strict restrictivist, <laughs> if I may say, but there are many different intermediary positions between the, those two possibilities. All right. Well, let's dive into, into some of the substance. And you know, the first chapter after you establish your foundation of methodology gets into the meaning of the use of force and in terms of what the threshold is for the use of force, how to distinguish it from other forms of coercive measures. And here we should be clear that you reject at the outset, or I shouldn't say reject, but you put to aside at the outset issues of economic coercion, which we're here talking about military force, but you grapple with how to distinguish between military use of force that constitutes a use of force as understood in Article 2.4 and other forms of force that might be better understood as the exercise of police powers. So let's dive into that a little bit. Yes, when I wrote the first version of this chapter, it was in French and it was in, in 2008. It was rather perhaps an unexplored dimension of the non-use of force, because as far as I know, very few studies were dedicated to that. And the problem was rather to distinguish between enforcement measures or even, for example, uh, just one soldier crossing a boundary without any weapon by mistake, is it a use of force? But more frequent if uh, a police officer cross a boundary without any authorization by the other state, is it a use of force? After all, it's, uh, it's an officer possibly uh, with a weapon on him this time, and he cross he crosses a boundary, so it could be qualified as a use of force. Is it? What are the consequences? And what is at stake when we, we study this kind of thing? It was in 2008. And since then, it has become perhaps more studied, particularly with cyber operations, of course, and cyber attacks. Because here again, you have this kind of action which is perhaps not the action we will think about if we consider the non-use of force, but at the same time, it could lead to the same results. And my position when I studied uh, this threshold was, first of all, that there was uh, a threshold. I mean, in practice, if a policeman crosses a boundary without an authorization, no one will will complain about a use of force. So you have this kind of, of incidents in which states will complain about a violation of their sovereignty, for example, but they won't argue that a use of force could be established. Why? Because if they, they do so, there is a risk that we, we will be placed in the, the, the regime of the non-use of force. Then self-defense could be invoked possibly by the other states. And it would be very dangerous for states to invoke the non-use of force regime if a certain threshold is not reached. So I had the conviction, and it was confirmed by many different precedents in practice, in the law of the sea, in the air, and also on the on the soil, uh, in the, the the relation between states, in the cooperation, for example, between police officers and so on, then that there was a threshold. And and what is at stake here is that if you are below the threshold, of course, you would breach international law if an agent of the state would cross the boundary. But there is no question of aggression, self-defense, and so forth. So it's a peaceful 
dispute and you will use peaceful means to, to settle the dispute. Whereas if you cross uh, the, the threshold, the, the boundary, if I may say, of, of the non-use of force, this time possibly you could uh, refer to the Security Council and e even if it is an armed attack, you could invoke self-defense. More recently with cyber operations and all the studies dedicated to that, I, I think it was confirmed. So let's leave cyber aside for a second. Let me just stay with this issue of threshold because the ICJ has on a couple of occasions referred to mere border skirmishes, suggesting that there is indeed some use of force, even military force, potentially even involving fatalities, that doesn't somehow rise to the level of a use of force, that it is a mere border skirmish and has not triggered Article 2.4. So you suggest some criteria that should be applied in assessing whether the threshold has been crossed. So maybe we can talk a little bit about those criteria. Well, those criteria, in my view, well, first thing perhaps to specify, there are two different thresholds. It's important. The first is the use of force. If you have, for example, an incident between two military units, obviously it's a use of force, but possibly it is not necessarily an armed attack. Right. So if you, you have this second threshold, and the, the consequence is self-defense. Uh, and if you reach the first threshold, you don't necessarily have this possibility to invoke self-defense. But you have also some incidents below the first threshold. Right. And I have mentioned some, some examples. Well, there are different criteria, in my view, that could be deduced from the existing practice, even if it is difficult, because most of the time those, these disputes will be resolved diplomatically, and, and there is no case law about that, for example, except perhaps some, some precedents, the fisheries case between, before the ICJ, in which the court considered clearly that the seizure of a vessel was not equivalent to a use of force, even if it was possibly uh, the use of, of a force, but not <laughs> in the sense of Article 2.4, but in the sense of in the common sense, if I may say. So the criteria, in my view, there are two basic criteria. The first is a certain will of the state to attack another state. I mean, if there is a mistake, I gave the example of the mistake. If you have by mistake, a plane crosses a boundary without knowing that, usually it won't be considered as a use of force because there is no will at all to attack another state. Uh, a second criter criterion is the gravity, of course. I, I mentioned one policeman crossing a boundary, but if you have 50 planes crossing a boundary, well, obviously it's a use of force and even an, an armed attack. So you must combine those two elements to assess the, the existence of a use of force. And beyond that, of course, you will have a look to, to the, the statesmen of the states and particularly the state accused of a use of force, because it's a clear indication if the state assumes it uses force by invoking, for example, a justification uh, in the domain of the, the non-use of force as self-defense, for example, well, obviously it's a use of force. So beyond those two objective, if I may say, criteria, the statements made by states are very important. Right. But the will of the state, and you in the book refer to this as intent, I can imagine a number of people objecting to as being something that is both difficult to assess and potentially subjective. So how are we to know what was the intent of the state? And I thought that the, the examples 
that you explore in the book regarding maritime incidents were perhaps the most interesting. And we've had some guests on the podcast recently talking about, for example, Japan potentially using force, not sure which kind of force, but that's, that's the issue, a, a, using force against Chinese naval or Coast Guard vessels in or around the disputed islands, right? The islands that both Japan and China claim to be their territory. So the Japanese scholars and the Japanese government takes the position that that would not be a use of force within the context of Article 2.4. It would be something that was governed by unclose. And, mm. and so your criteria would suggest that, well, we should look to the intent, to the will of the state. If, if the government of Japan authorizes the maritime self-defense force to sink or to use force against a Chinese naval or Coast Guard vessel, at first blush, that would look to be a use of force for purposes of Article 2.4 of the Charter. But how are we to assess the intent or the will and how, how should that inform our understanding of whether this is a use of force? Yes, you are right. It's very difficult to evaluate, but I think that it's not the only criterion and that there are more objective and material elements we can take into account. The gravity of the acts and also, and, and your example is very uh, clear about that, the context. I mean, in an arbitral uh, tribunal, say that very limited material actions were equivalent to a use of force because there was a territorial dispute and it was obvious in this context that a certain kind of behavior would be equivalent to a use of force. Whereas if you have an entirely different context between two states that are in peace between them and, and that there is an incident between two policemen or even soldiers, and obviously it, would, it, it won't be considered as a use of force because there is no policy of the states. So here again, of course, that doesn't mean that there is no illegal action. Even by mistake, I mean, if by mistake and it happens, a bomb explodes on the territory of a state, of course, there is international responsibility that can be deduced from that and an obligation to reparation. But there is no will of the state to harm the other states, very generally speaking. It's not the only criterion. It's one of the different elements, but I think it's, it's a relevant criterion still. So one of the new sections of the second edition of the book, as you started to mention just now, was indeed cyber, and you devoted a, a new section to cyber. So what are your thoughts on how we should understand a cyber operation as potentially constituting a use of force? Well, when I studied the positions of the state about this subject, because uh, for years now, you have many different meetings in which states take very clear position about that. Beyond the Tallinn Manual, which was elaborated on the basis of, of the position of states, but also with some kind of reflection made by scholars. But if you look at the positions of the states, it is clear, and it's one thing, that in some cases, a cyber operation could be considered as a use of force. You, so you cannot exclude that cyber operation could, in some instances, be considered as a use of force. It's one thing because it was not obvious from the start. You could say, like many states said about economic force, that, well, this kind of use of force, and after all, an economic use of force can cause very uh, serious damages and numerous victims. If you take, for example, the embargo against Iraq in the 90s, thousands of victims 
arose after the imposition of this embargo. And still, it was considered that by the majority of states that you cannot in any case consider that an economic measure would be equivalent to a use of force. It's not the same result with cyber operation. First, a conclusion very clear from, from the positions of state. So there is uh, this possibility. And of course, you cannot say that every cyber operation, whatever form it takes, could be considered as a use of force. For example, if you hack a computer to find information without any other damage than that, it's not considered as a use of force, but rather as an operation with intelligence operation and possibly in violation of the sovereignty of the state, but not as a use of force. So second conclusion, you must distinguish between different cyber operation. And here again, you must check that the threshold uh, has been reached. And I think the same criteria that the one I've I had found without studying cyber operation can be transposed here. And the criteria established in, in the Tallinn manuals can be considered, in my view, as relevant. And basically, well, here again, the gravity uh, of the action, taking into consideration the effects of the cyber operations. But so, as I understand it, then, you're in agreement with the Talon Manual, Michael Schmidt, and those folks who suggest that a cyber operation that has similar scale and effects as a kinetic attack, in other words, to use Michael Schmidt's terms, breaks things and hurts people, that that is, if it has sufficient gravity, scale and effects, is going to constitute a use of force. But recently, countries like France have released statements that suggested that even cyber operations that have sufficient harm to the economy, for example, the taking down of the stock exchange or something of that nature could be considered a use of force. And I, I take it that you do not agree with that position that has been taken by some of the Western European countries. Well, yes, indeed, I don't agree. Basically, if I follow this restrictive methodology I've right. mentioned, because it's not uh, the view of the, the, the majority of states, many states are reluctant to recognize, first of all, the qualification uh, as a use of force of a cyber operation in, in as a matter of principle they accept it i think that today all states can accept the possibility to qualify a cyber operation as a use of force but to qualify this kind of cyber operation as a use of force would lead to a very dangerous situation in which of course self defense could be possibly used too, because this gap between the first threshold and the second threshold is for some states not really a gap because they will have the tendency to make a confusion between those thresholds. Right. So this is why many different states will consider that you cannot qualify as a use of force, a cyber operation, if you have some economic damages. And if you follow this path, you, you should also recognize that an embargo would also be equivalent to use right. of force. This is why between the criteria recognized by the Tallinn Manual, there is also a certain kind of direct link of causation between the damage and, and the action. Right. So. It's not only that you must establish a damage, but also a direct cause and link between the action and the damage. And this was the theory adapted to reject 
the qualification of economic measures as a use of force. And I think we can transpose this theory here to cyber operation. Well, we could we could spend the rest of the episode talking about cyber, but let's move on to the next big issue that you tackle, which is the status of non-state actors. And so you begin this chapter after relating the issue back to your theoretical and methodological foundation by assessing the applicability of the rule to rebel groups in an insurgency, to national liberation movements, and even to civil wars. But of course, the most controversial aspect is whether the law on the use of force and self-defense can apply to non-state actors such as terrorist organizations or armed groups. So let's dive into how you view whether the use of force and, and self-defense can apply to you know, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and so forth. Well, this is a very controversial issue, perhaps, <laughs> perhaps the most controversial Indeed. issue, but at, at this stage, my position would be Yes, it can, but what does it mean? And this is my, my main criticism against those who say, well, it can apply, then we can target terrorists wherever they are and whenever we want. Because, for example, if you take Al-Qaeda, for example, and if you say self-defense can be invoked against Al-Qaeda, well, in my view, why not? But first of all, it's useless because there is no prohibition to use force against Al-Qaeda. The rule prohibiting the use of force does not protect at all non-state actors. Uh, this rule protects states. So if you say, uh, I need self-defense to attack Al-Qaeda, it seems rather defensive, actually, <laughs> because you don't at all need to refer to this kind of rule. You can use force against Al-Qaeda. There is no prohibition to use force against non-state actors. Of course, you must respect human rights. And if you, you reach a state of war, uh, international humanitarian law, but there is no, no prohibition as such to use uh, military means against uh, non-state actors, particularly, of course, if it has been responsible for violent attacks against civilians. And if you want to refer to self-defense, why not? But then you have not reached any practical result in the sense that you can, yes, you can use force against Al-Qaeda. But the real problem, of course, and what is behind this debate, is that you would like to invoke self-defense against Al-Qaeda in order not only to attack Al-Qaeda, but also to attack, for example, Afghanistan in 2001, or Yemen or any other country in which Al-Qaeda would be present. And at this stage, you have a problem because you can invoke self-defense against Al-Qaeda. Okay, but then... What will be your response when Afghanistan will say, okay, I'm protected by the, the rule prohibiting uh, the use of force? And of course, you invoke self-defense, but against another actor. It's common sense that you cannot invoke self-defense against an actor who is not the aggressor. So you will have to establish that state you would like to, to attack is responsible to some extent for a use of force. And international law is very clear about that. It's possible. So you have possibilities, but you cannot say, for example, like Western states, some Western states say, European states mainly, when they bombed ISIL on Syrian territory, they said basically, 
we don't bomb Syria, so we don't use force against Syria. Right. So it's not necessary to invoke any argument because we don't use force against Syria. Of course, it's not possible uh, if you read in good faith any texts in international law, as and we have the, we had this conversation about a use of force. If you cross a boundary and you bomb a territory of a state, you cause damages to to the the facilities, buildings. You kill citizens of the states. Of course, you use force against the states. To use force against states, it is not only to use force against the government of the states. The states is not only composed of a government, but also of other elements, and including, of course, the population. So you cannot use this argument. I don't use force against the state. You use force also against the state, and this is why you mo- must also invoke self-defense vis-a-vis this particular state. And then you will be obliged to establish that this state is responsible for an armed attack. And here you have some legal tools, basically Article 3G of the definition of aggression, establishing that if a state sends a non-state actor against another state, it is responsible for an armed attack. Or if this state, if this state is substantively involved in the activities of the non-state actor. So it's difficult, and the courts in Nicaragua and more recently in uh, DRC Uganda, the International Court of Justice, has applied those criteria to uh, specific situations. And in my view, this is a state of positive international law today. The vast majority of states and underlying movement has repeatedly insisted that they didn't want any enlargement or broadening of the notion of self-defense, and they specifically refer to the jurisprudence of the ICJ. So you must establish uh, a substantial involvement of the state in the activities of the non-state actor. And if it is not the case, well, you could possibly say that there is a use of force by the state concerned if it harbors, for example, the non-state actor without being involved in the activities of this group. But you cannot say that it is an armed attack. And I think Article 3G was the result of decades of debates between states. It was a compromise. And I know that many states would like to go further today. But the majority of states is not ready for that. And this is why, if you take this methodology once again, the conclusion is that even if in practice this rule has been breached actually several times, like it was during the Cold War II, I must say, well, the state of of international law is still the same. So I want to drill down into this just a little bit more, because it it strikes me that we're we're at the core of the so-called unwilling or unable doctrine. My understanding from your chapter is, first of all, we are in complete agreement that the unable part of the unwilling or unable doctrine is meaningless, that there's just zero justification for using force against a state that is simply unable to do anything about the threat, but is otherwise innocent. And really, it's only a question of whether the state is unwilling to allow the defending state to use force within its territory. And if it is unwilling, then the question becomes one of attribution. But I guess, and you've outlined this and you've sort of explained just now how, in your view, the test remains substantial involvement, as was articulated in Nicaragua and other cases at the ICJ. But I I want to press 
you on this and ask whether, in your view, even from a restrictive perspective, whether the repeated invocation of the unwilling or unable doctrine and state practice in, in accordance with the unwilling or unable doctrine has in any way modified the test for attribution. And when I say the test for attribution, of course, what I'm talking about here is the attribution of what amounts to an armed attack by a non-state actor to the unwilling state such that the defending state may use force in self-defense against that state. Has the test for that attribution has the, the standard been watered down, diluted in any way? Well, the first thing is that it would have been possible for the U.S. to interpret broadly, but not too broad, the existing criteria in 2001. I think that at that time, it was possible to argue that Afghanistan was substantially involved in the activities of al-Qaeda, and that for this reason, it was possible to invoke self-defense against Afghanistan. It is true that if you read the text of Article 3G restrictively, the involvement is in relation with the specific actions, the specific use of force. For example, if you transpose this to, to the 9-11 events, you should prove that Afghanistan as a state was involved in the attack of uh, 9-11. It is very difficult to establish and to prove that. But possibly the U.S. could have said, well, perhaps not, but Afghanistan was in substantial involvement in the activities of al-Qaeda in general in Afghanistan. And then we consider that we must interpret Article 3G reasonably considering the circumstances. And we'll never know, but possibly it could have been accepted in the long run, in the long term. The Bush administration preferred to invoke a very broad conception of self-defense, considering that a list of 60 countries could be established and, and, and those countries could be targeted because they had certain links with al-Qaeda without any further requirements. And then I think there was a reaction, at least in the long run, not against the, the repost as such against the Taliban in Afghanistan, but against the doctrine. And the war against Iraq in 2003, the doctrine of preventive war, combined with this kind of very broad conception of self-defense against non-state actors, was the occasion for many states to, to have a strong uh, opposition against this kind of doctrine. And this is why Possibly also the court in 2005, so not so far after the war against Iraq, had the occasion to interpret self-defense perhaps more broadly than it had before in Nicaragua, but they didn't. This is perhaps why uh, the vast majority of states and the ICJ too preferred to stick to the very restrictive conception of the criteria of attribution. But... To answer completely to your question, you say that in Nicaragua and Uganda, DRC Uganda, the court used uh, the substantial involvement criterion. Actually, it didn't. It only referred to the sending argument. Mm. And the sending criterion is different. It's an argument of attribution. Because mm. if you send the active attributable, you can impute the act to the state as such. But substantial involvement, the court didn't use it. And it's at least a possibility to interpret 
broadly Article 3G, because this time it's not a question of attribution of the use of force launched by the non-state actor, but to consider the state responsible for its involvement as such. It's like the due diligence principle applied to to armed attack, I would say. If you are substantially involved in the activities of a a non-state actor, structurally, I mean, well, your support is so strong that you are responsible for an armed attack. But it's not necessary to attribute an act of the non-state actor as as such to the state. It's different. The sending, it's one thing. Substantial involvement, it's something different. And perhaps it could be accepted that in some cases, actually, if you have this, if this criterion is met, like it was in Afghanistan with Al-Qaeda, well, Article 3G could be applied. But intervening states uh, didn't choose to refer to this kind of, of interpretation. They prefer to invoke very broad theories like the unwilling or unable is, for example. And I think it's not a very good strategy if the objective is to convince the majority of the other states. Right. So just to tie a sort of a ribbon on this argument, I guess my last question is, how do you understand the relationship between the test for attribution for purposes of state responsibility as as articulated by the IOC and the test for attribution for purposes of use ad bellum and self-defense? Are they identical uh, or do you see some difference between the standards? Well, I think that the sending criterion is equivalent to effective control instructions and to the words used in the, the work of the International Law Commission about responsibility of states. But the substantial involvement criterion has not been explored, and it's not a question of attribution, because it's an action directly attributed to the state as such, I mean. So it's different. I think here you, ha- you have something different than the classical law of international responsibility, because the question won't be to to attribute or not a specific act, but rather to assess the legality of a certain support. Because every financial or even material support to a non-state actor is not an armed attack. It's prohibited, if of course this non-state actor uses force, but it's not an armed attack. But if it is equivalent to a substantial involvement, it could become an armed attack. Here I speak delegate ferenda, I must say. I, I think there is no precedent. The court didn't say that. But I don't know what would be the reaction of states if one state or a group of states would use this kind of argument to, to justify a military operation. Another, of course, problem was that in, in Afghanistan in 2001, for example, the U.S. chose not to uh, ask the Security Council to authorize a use of force, despite the fact that more than probably this authorization would have been given. So here we have a problem with the necessity criterion of the self-defense agreement, because by definition, self-defense should only be used if you have no other means to address the problem. And the first, normally, if you read the charter, the first repost should be to be taken by the Security Council and self-defense is only if it doesn't work. Of course, you can invoke self-defense, but it's another problem. But I think those problems are, are 
of course, linked as we saw in Syria too, for example, in this case too. Perhaps it could have been possible to have some consensual and centralization of the use of force against ISIL, but for political reasons, it was not possible. Right. Well, this brings us to the issue of self-defense itself, and it's probably the last thing we're going to have time to, to get into. But you have a very long chapter on the doctrine of self-defense itself. And to begin your discussion of the more controversial issues that surround the doctrine of self-defense, you begin with preventative self-defense. And one aspect that I found very interesting here is that you tend to avoid the whole debate over differences between anticipatory self-defense, preemptive self-defense, preventative self-defense, what are the differences between these things? You basically just say, none of it is understood to be permissible from a restrictive interpretation of Article 51, which of course is going to alarm many of our listeners. So why don't we dive into why it is that you say there is no anticipatory, or as you, you label all of this as preventative self-defense, you say none of it is permissible. Well, it can be seen as a radical position, but in my view, it isn't at all because it reflects clearly the position of the vast majority of states. It's interesting because this debate is, is a very old debate. During the 50s, if you look at the debates inside the General Assembly about what would become the, the definition of aggression and also the resolution, the de declaration on friendly relations, some states at that stage invoked the argument of the necessity to recognize self-defense is a case of an imminent threat, at least, of course, they said, but it was not accepted by the other states. And this is why the, the clear wording of Article 51, if an armed attack occurs, an armed attack, not a threat, not an imminent threat, not any sort of threat. It was reaffirmed in the definition of aggression, Article 1, an aggression is a use of force, not a threat uh, to use force. And what was very interesting when I prepared the first edition of, of the book in the 2000s was that the debate was very intense inside the United Nations because it was the time of the Bush doctrine of preventive war and so forth. And at some stage, well, it was very interesting because the Bush administration was nuanced, actually, I must recognize. When I read the national security document they elaborated at the end of 2002, they said uh, positive international law obviously recognizes the possibility to use force self-defense in the case of an imminent threat. This is positive international law, step one. But step two, we would like to broaden the scope of self-defense to cover non-imminent threat, because otherwise events like 9-11 could, could happen again, just to, to summarize uh, the argument. And I read at this stage the reaction by the Secretary General at that time with a group of experts composed by the Secretary General, and actually, they accepted step one. So they said, yes, it is true. In positive international law, it is possible to invoke self-defense in the case of an imminent threat. They didn't define this imminent threat, but at least they considered it was the state of, of positive international law without motivation, but it was a clear position. And then the report of the Secretary General was read and commented by states and at that time, I was, I must say, surprised to discover that the vast majority of states said 
no, we don't accept step, step two. Of course, we don't want to broaden the scope of self-defense because in this case, the Security Council wouldn't be useful anymore. Uh, because if there is a threat, whatever the threat is, and if every state in the world can invoke self-defense to repost, well, the Security Council is not uh, really needed because <laughs> its role uh, precisely is if there is a threat, and this time very broadly defined, the Security Council can repost, including by the use of force, but not states uh, unilaterally. So step two was unanimously, I must say, uh, except some states, but very, uh, very few states reject it. But the majority of states rejected step one. They said, no, there is no, in international law, read Article 51, there is no preventive self-defense in the case of a threat, even imminent. And so this is why I must say that the position of Joram Dinstein, for example, which in this particular case, we share uh, a position <laughs> because he also rejected the theory, but uh, not uh, on the basis of the position of states because he uh, rather follows a different method. He had a logical uh, reasoning and very interesting in my view, considering that the question is not is there a threat, but it's rather has the armed attack begun. Right. The date, the precise date of the beginning of the armed attack. And of course, if a missile has been launched, you must not wait until this missile will reach your territory to destroy this missile. But it's not uh, preventive or preventative or anticipatory self-defense. In this case, it's simply self-defense against an armed attack, which right. occurs even without any effects on the ground. So the, the debate is different. And in my view, is the correct position and the correct interpretation of Article 51 of the UN Charter. Right. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, Jörg Dinstein as well, Tom Raus also uses this term of interceptive self-defense. So it's... Yes, indeed. Interceptive, meaning there is an armed attack. Right. You, you can stop it even before you are the, the victim uh, or you have you suffer any damage, but at least you can put an end to an armed attack, uh, which has begun. So it's in conformity with the text, with the position of the majority of states, and it can, it can to some extent, at least reconcile the text, the practice, and the spirit of self-defense, which must, of course, protect a state which is the object uh, of an armed attack. Interesting. So again, we could spend a great deal of time talking about preventative self-defense, but I did want to round out our discussion of self-defense. I think we've, we've talked already, a little bit already about what you call the indirect aggression in the context of the so-called unwilling or unable doctrine, but you also devote a fair amount of time to necessity and proportionality itself and, and how one should understand necessity and proportionality from this restrictive perspective. So perhaps we could end our discussion of self-defense with that and explain to us your understanding of necessity and proportionality? Well, necessity is a very classical criterion uh, used when you invoke self-defense. Most of the time, especially in the English literature, it will be linked with the Caroline incident. But the problem, according to me, is that in many cases, it will be invoked as uh, a criterion triggering a right to self-defense. 
And in reality, and you can read it very interesting, the works of the International Law Commission, because they discussed a lot about self-defense during the responsibility of states debates. As a circumstance precluding wrongfulness, self-defense was, to some extent, discussed. And they invoked the president of the Caroline not to use necessity as a criterion triggering a right to self-defense or founding a right to self-defense, but limiting the exercise of a right to self-defense. And this is different, right. of course, because, and this is why it's a more restrictive approach, because in this case, it's not sufficient to say, I'm the victim of an armed attack. You must, in addition to that, show that a use of force in repost is necessary, meaning you must first uh, and foremost complain, for example, against uh, the armed attack and, and ask, for example, the state to put an end to its uh, armed attack. And then if it's not possible, you can go to the Security Council and ask the Council to do something like the US could have done in 2001. And then if you don't have any other possibility, you can use self-defense. It was very clear that if you follow the works of the IELC, that it was a common understanding of the necessity as a criterion. Of course, I know that today it's some kind of return to the 19th century. Many authors will use necessity as an argument as such and as the only criterion required to invoke self-defense. In my view, it's a return to the 19th century, and the fact that the Caroline incident is invoked is significant. What is more curious is that it is often linked to some kind of reasoning according to which international law should be adapted to new circumstances. <laughs> In my view, the best way to adapt international law is not to uh, use argument from the beginning of the 19th century. And this is why necessity, in my view, is rather a criterion that restricts the use of self-defense. All right. Well, listen, we could, as I said, we could spend a lot more time. There are a number of very important chapters that we haven't even begun to discuss, such as the use of force by consent or by invitation, humanitarian uh, intervention and the, the legitimacy of that. But we won't have time to get into all of those. I will just simply leave our listeners with the invitation to go buy the book as quickly as possible and to read uh, all of it. We, we haven't, of course, been able to do it justice. But there were a couple of questions I wanted to round out with. The first is whether or to what extent your views have changed between the first and the second edition. Is there anything that stands out in your mind as something that you have revised your views on between the two editions of the book? Well, perhaps one thing that was very important for me that was telling in the, the last few years was the argument of invitation. We didn't have the, the occasion to, to speak about that. But in the first edition, my understanding of this kind of argument was that following a restrictive approach, what of course that it was a good argument, obviously, but if you have an invitation from the existing government and recognized government of a state, in addition to that, you should prove as a state that the objective of your intervention 
would not to settle an internal dispute between the state, taking here the position adopted by the Institute of International Law in 1975 in a resolution adopted at Wiesbaden at that time, uh, named non-intervention in civil wars. And according to this resolution, it's forbidden for a state and it's based on the principle of non-intervention and on the principle of self-determination of peoples, it's forbidden to intervene in a purely internal war or, or crisis even, uh, beyond uh, a state of war. Because it's not for a third state to, to support one party against another in an internal uh, conflict. Well, I didn't change my mind uh, entirely, but taking into account different precedents like Russia in, in Syria, like Saudi Arabia in Yemen, like Senegal in Guinea-Bissau, for example. My impression was that perhaps it's not international change to some extent, because it seems nowadays, except in some tricky uh, situations like in Ukraine, that it seems that the Security Council has become a body that will determine if it is possible or not to invoke this argument that will determine who is the authority entitled to invite another state to intervene, even if this authority doesn't have any effectivity or have no or, or, or very uh, very weak effectivity on the ground. For example, in Guinea-Bissau, the president-elected Barrow was recognized as able to invite foreign forces in Guinea-Bissau, uh, sorry, in Gambia, even without any effective power, because the Security Council recognized that it was the, the president and the, the legal authority of, of the Gambia. In Yemen too, President Hadi, even with very, very weak effective power of the ground, and elected with 99.97% uh, of the votes. So we can perhaps suspect that it's not a very legitimate, paradoxically, uh, authority, considering the possible bias in, in the elections, was recognized as the authority able to invite another country. So I think that it's not for a state to prove nowadays that its objective is or is not to, to take part in, in an internal civil uh, conflict, but rather it can invoke a resolution of the Security Council and it's sufficient. So the Security Council, perhaps in the 90s and the 2000s, used to authorize a use of force in those cases. And now it prefers to determine who is the authority able to invite another country. So I think that this practice is, in my view, rather new and changes a little bit the state of international law. This is perhaps the main difference between the two editions. Another is perhaps the extraterritorial killings in relation to the threshold of the use of force based on different precedents in the first edition I had perhaps, I gave the impression, and, and I learned that by, by listening to some reactions by readers, I gave the impression that an extraterritorial killing should be considered as below the threshold. And particularly nowadays, I must say that uh, my position is different. I think that it must be presumed that 
it has reached the threshold. It can happen that it is below the threshold, but most of the time, given the conditions in which extraterritorial killings, targeted killings are, are launched, I think that the threshold is, is reached. So it's perhaps here substantially a different position than in the first edition. Interesting. So I guess the question and issue, uh, which I sort of foreshadowed at the very beginning of our discussion, is I wanted to circle back to this divide between the extensive and restrictive views. And I mean, we're not going to resolve any of these debates here today, but I, I guess it, it strikes me that this is a problem, right? That if scholars such as yourself argue you know, that the restrictive view is the right view, and if, that if we take this view, then, for example, anticipatory self-defense is unlawful under positive law, but nonetheless, if policymakers in countries like the United States, the United Kingdom, Israel, reject that view and act on the basis of what we would consider the extensive interpretation of international law and the use contrabellum, this strikes me as, as a problem for international law, a problem that has the potential of eroding the normative power of international law, or the legitimacy, or raises questions as to the validity of international law. So how do you view the, this problem? And do you have thoughts on how to bridge the gap or reduce the chasm between the two uh, sort of camps, if you will? Well, first of all, you, you are right. It's a problem. I must say that it's very difficult when you are, but it's interesting too, when you usually in the French speaking world, for example, it's not original at all to, to argue that self-defense is not recognized if there is no armed attack. And if you cross the ocean, it will be, or even the sea, it will be different possibly. And it's interesting to confront arguments and views. At the end of the day, it's, of course, you are right. It can jeopardize the normativity of, of the regime. And, but the solution, well, it's a problem about international law as a whole. Of course, it is true for the non-use of force, but for freedom of expression, for example, here again, you have also very different views about what it, it, it should cover or not. In uh, You have very different positions. The solution, according to me, is to have a common language and then to refer to common sources and not to think, first of all, not to think that your position is the only one. And the only way to have a common language, and this is perhaps a second thing, is to refer to common sources like the text. You cannot exclude the text. Uh, for example, Article 3G, you cannot exclude that just like that. You cannot exclude the jurisprudence of the ICJ and just say there is a practice, so it's okay. No, you, you, we must look to practice, but you must, uh, we must also uh, read the text and have a look at what has been formally recognized as representing international law. Otherwise, you are right, there is no international law. It's a thesis that has been supported, it can be. But if you want to go beyond this thesis and consider that there is common international legal order, we should refer to, to common sources. Right. So I guess in, in some sense, there's an analogy here to what is going on in democracies with polarization and, and echo chambers and it sort of mm -hmm. leaves us with sort of similar problems and potentially similar solutions. Well, thank you so much. Before I let you go, of course, I'm going to ask you to recommend three articles, books, three readings, aside from your book, of course, which is the number <laughs> one recommendation from this episode, but three other 
books or articles that you think our listeners should really get into? Yes, okay. The first article I would recommend is an article written by Polina Starsky named Silence Within the Process of Normative Change and Evolution of the Prohibition on the Use of Force. It was published in the Journal on the Use of Force in International Law in 2017. And it's very interesting because it was in this debate about unable and unwilling. And her point is to study silence as an argument. It's very interesting, according to me, because for many authors, if there is silence, there is acceptance. Right. And of course, it's very more complicated than that. And, and she studied that very well in depth with practice, with relevant texts and jurisprudence. And she has a very nuanced position. And she inspired me too in interpreting silences, which perhaps is the common, most common position of many states, I must say. So right. it's a very tricky but interesting question, which is not so studied in the existing literature. A second article, which was very interesting to me when I prepared the second edition, was an article written by Victor Catan, and the title is Furthering the War on Terrorism Through International Law, How the United States and the United Kingdom Resurrected the Bush Doctrine on Using Preventive Military Force to Combat Terrorism in the Journal on the Use of Force in International Law, 2018. It's based on WikiLeaks documents, so it's very original. And he showed that the Bethlehem Principles, well known and presented as a doctrinal text defining self-defense as an academic exercise, was in reality the result of many discussions between some authors and Daniel Bethlehem himself, and former or current legal officers of different states. And well, the title speaks for itself, considering the, if you want to know the result of his research, but it's very original because it's based on, on WikiLeaks material. And you spoke about an echo chamber and how it can work, and also the relations between scholars and, and legal counsels. In sometimes they will use a title, and in other cases, they will use another title. It's interesting to, to compare. Very interesting. And the third and last reading I would recommend, it's a book written by Agatha Verdebu. And the title, it's published by Cambridge University Press a few weeks ago. And the title is Rewriting Histories of the Use of Force, the narrative of indifference. And it's a very, very interesting and, and innovative book, in my view, because it challenges the classical narrative according to which before the Pact of Paris or even before the UN Charter, the use of force would have been, well, uh, a prerogative of the, 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 the power of the states, would, wouldn't have been prohibited wouldn't wouldn't have been permitted the narrative of indifference, and she challenges this uh, classical narrative, showing that it was prohibited, but with exceptions, with justifications. And what is very interesting in reading the debates of the time, basically the 19th century and the beginning of the, the 20th century, is, is that, for example, the unwilling or unable doctrine was not used as such with those words but was used 
and contested even more than 150 years ago. So we are talking now about this kind of, of justification, but it's an old debate and it is very interesting to discover that we are not so original after all. Well, that's a great note to end on. Olivier, thank you so much for, for taking the time to speak with us today. And again, congratulations on the, the second edition of what is really a, such an important book in the field. So thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. Again, if you have any comments, feedback, critiques, or suggestions for future episodes, please do send me an email. My contact info is on the website, which is at jibjabpodcast.com. You can also find links to the material discussed today and all the reading recommendations to date on the website. If you're enjoying the podcast or are finding it helpful, please do spread the word. Share it on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or mention it in your own blog posts or in your other writing. And do tell your friends, colleagues, or students all about it. You can, of course, also follow us on Twitter at, at JibJabPodcast for updates on the coming episodes. This podcast is produced by me, Craig Martin. The opening music is by Dream Machine, used on a Creative Commons license. Until next time, stay safe.